Hello everyone, my name is Drew Ray, and this is DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. This is episode 30 of the show, which is an awfully long time really to talk about disasters, without mentioning RMS Titanic. Rather than directly describe the events leading up to the sinkable of the unsinkable ship though, I'm going to use the Titanic to illustrate a point that I've made before on the podcast. Accidents don't happen because people are evil. Accidents don't even happen because people are stupid. It's very easy, though, to look back at accidents and find simple explanations filled with blame for the people involved, and which totally miss the underlying message that we need to learn. If the people who caused disasters were evil or stupid, then we could relax. We're not evil. We're not stupid. We actually care about safety. So it couldn't happen to us, could it? Any true explanation for accidents has to cope with the problem of false assurance. In the years, months and days leading up to accidents, people honestly believed that they were safe. Moreover, they believed that they had good reasons to feel safe. They took precautions, they measured the remaining risk, and they found it to be acceptable. When we take precautions, When we measure risk, when we decide that risk is acceptable, we could be doing exactly the same thing. To be truly safe, we need to understand the positive behaviours which allow organisations to discriminate between true assurance and false assurance. The Titanic was said to be unsinkable, and yet it sank. It sank due to steaming at full speed into an area of ocean filled with icebergs, Due to poor communication protocols, no rescue by ship occurred. There were sufficient lifeboats for a ship-to-ship rescue, but not enough to load everyone at once. Even the few available were used suboptimally in a chaotic evacuation. All of these statements were true for other ships, at other times, and in other places. Let's start with the ice. The idea that ships can avoid ice by keeping careful lookout has never been really plausible. As an early example, consider the Lady of the Lake, a wooden brig sunk in 1833. After encountering an ice field, the brig attempted to navigate to clear water, but it was struck by ice on the starboard bow and began to sink. The captain and some of the crew and passengers escaped in the two smaller ship's boats, but the longboat with most of the passengers capsized. By one account, the captain's boat actually encountered another brig, only to find that that ship was already sinking in similar circumstances, so they had to hop on the brig, take life boats off, and continue on. The SS Islander, on the other hand, was a Canadian steamship, built in 1888 in Yoka, Scotland. She carried a crew of 65 and 107 passengers. The ship was properly fitted out, with enough lifeboats for all of the crew and all of the passengers. At two o'clock in the morning on 15th of August 1901, the Islander was running at full speed on its normal route through the Inside Passage, on the Pacific coast of Alaska and Canada. Having set off from the Alaskan end of the route, icebergs were a strong possibility. The pilot, the only officer on the bridge at the time, spotted ice in the water but didn't slow down, and ten minutes later the Islander hit another iceberg on the port bow. The ship's master was alerted to the collision, but he didn't really realise the extent of the damage or the extent of the danger. So the passengers and the crew weren't alerted, and the lifeboats weren't immediately readied. 
In the end, once it became obvious, became obvious that there was a problem, there was a last-minute disorganised rush for the lifeboats, and they pulled away before they were full. When the islander sank 20 minutes later, 16 crew and 23 passengers, including the master, were left behind. The hazard presented by ice is now managed in quite the other direction, by detecting the ice instead of the ships running into it. It's managed by the International Ice Patrol, which was established as a direct consequence of the Titanic. The Ice Patrol keeps track of the extent and location of ice that can present a threat to shipping, and that allows ships to reliably avoid the ice. Once a ship has encountered ice, the ability to survive is almost a direct trade-off with the open water handling characteristics. In that sense, there was really nothing particularly vulnerable about the Titanic. RMS Titanic was built as a fast luxury passenger ship, not an icebreaker, and that means you have to make certain compromises as part of the trade-off. Being good at being a passenger ship makes you being poor at handling ice. In fact, staying afloat for two and a half hours after being holed was, well, it wasn't extraordinary, but it was a lot better than many other vessels in similar straits. In fact, if the nearest ship, the Californian, had been alerted to the danger, there would have actually been time to evacuate Titanic in an orderly way. Let's look at a couple of examples that weren't so lucky. SS City of Rio de Janeiro was built in 1878, before the watertight bulkheads that were in Titanic were in common use. When the ship struck rocks off the mouth of San Francisco Harbour in 1901, there were only eight minutes between the initial collision and complete sinking. Even eight minutes could have been enough for launching the lifeboats, but the Chinese crew and the American officers couldn't properly communicate. The Empress of Ireland, built in 1906, did have proper watertight compartments, but she still sank in 14 minutes when she collided with the Norwegian collier Storstad. The exact sequence of events in that one's unknown. It's one of those he-said-he-said he said situations, where according to both captains they were stationary with stopped engines at the time they collided. Rio de Janeiro and Empress of Ireland weren't ice-related accidents, but they illustrate the underlying problem. There are plenty of circumstances where ships sink quickly, and the risks associated with quick sinking just can't be eliminated through designing better ships. There will always be some remaining risk that needs to be carried over into operations, including emergency equipment. That's where the hubris of the designers was reinforced by the ludicrousy of the regulators for the Titanic. Titanic actually had more than the mandatory complement of lifeboats, because the regulations assumed that a large passenger ship would evacuate to another ship instead of to the open water. Each lifeboat could make more than one journey, so you didn't need as many lifeboat spaces. In fact, if that's what you're doing, you don't actually want too many lifeboats. It would just make efficient use of the boats hard if you had too many of them. Of course, this model of rescue not only assumes that your ship is going to stay afloat for a long time after the accident, it also assumes that there'll always be some other ship nearby and in easy contact. There were no operational rules to make sure that that was the case, and the idea that the ship's going to stay afloat for a long time isn't a great assumption either. I can't find a direct parallel to the lifeboat regulation issue, but regulations that impede safety rather than enhance it are unfortunately quite common. P.S. General Slocum 
was a passenger steamboat, built in 1891 and operating around New York Harbour. During a small part of the year she operated as a passenger ferry, and at other times she was available for chartered excursions. The boat was constructed primarily of light timber, painted and varnished, repainted, revarnished, to the point where the whole ship was a tinderbox. There were no fire hatches or fireproof bulkheads. In fact, pretty much no inherent protection from fire. It wasn't anything special about General Slocum. It was a typical coastal or island steamer of its time. That's just the way they were built. On June 15, 1904, the boat was chartered by a Lutheran church, with over 1,300 passengers, more than half of them children and most of the rest women from the church. So imagine the decks of the steamer, crowded with children, returning from an exciting day. Imagine below decks, the small lamp room in the bow. Fifteen to twenty oil-filled lamps, a few barrels of lamp oil, some cooking oil, a few old paint tins, a floor covered in old oil stains from filling the lamps, an open flame lamp to see by when you're filling the other lamps, some discarded matches, some spare matches, and a couple of barrels filled with hay for storing bar supplies. Yeah, and this is also the room where the crew regularly nips off to light matches, to start up other lamps, or to have a quiet smoke. No one knows exactly how the fire started, but as the official report points out, there were plenty of opportunities. The first crew member to spot the fire alerted the pilot house and asked the engineer for water pressure via the steam fire pump. As soon as they'd laid out the hose, pointed at the fire and turned on the tap, the fire hose burst in several places, and then it got totally blown off its own coupling. The crew, tied, the crew tried to connect another hose, but in their hurry they didn't realise that half of the old coupling was still there, so the new hose didn't fit. Eventually they just gave up firefighting efforts and they fled. Meanwhile, the captain is up in the wheelhouse with the two pilots and they delay taking action. According to their story, they beached the ferry at the earliest possible time after becoming aware of the fire. According to the subsequent inquiry, this was highly implausible and inconsistent with the rest of the available evidence. Instead of turning for the nearest beach, putting the wind behind the steamer, and blowing the flames and smoke forward from the bow, they kept pointed into the wind, which fanned the fire and sent it back over the rest of the vessel. So not just did this delay the opportunity to escape, but it made conditions on the boat much worse. When the General Slocum eventually hit land, it did so bow first straight into the beach, with the stern still in deep water, and fire at the front of the boat preventing anyone coming forward to evacuate. They estimate that four to six hundred people drowned after the boat had made it to land, just because it beached head-on instead of sideways. Both the firefighting and the evacuation were hampered by a lack of practice. Fire drills had been conducted the year before, but there was a lot of turnover of crew. In fact, only one of the current crew had been part of the last year's drills. No attempt was made to lower the life rafts, and there was some evidence that they were in fact painted in place. The main reason that the crew were so badly trained was the way the vessel was employed. Pleasure excursions were seasonal work, 
so casual crews were employed for just a few months each year. They were unskilled labour, and there was no particular interest in training them because they'd just be working somewhere else next year. But compare this to what they actually needed in an emergency. There were more children than adults aboard. They needed calm, competent assistance and clear instructions if they were going to escape. In the end, 70% of the passengers died, but only 7% of the crew did. The real travesty, though, was none of this. The real travesty was the life-saving equipment. The life preservers were made of fabric filled with granulated cork. When they were grabbed, they tore, spilling out the cork. Anyone who dove over the side of the vessel using life equipment probably wasn't going to survive. Those passengers who did make it out were mainly rescued by other small boats. In particular, the tugs John L. Wade and Walter Tracy, who came alongside the burning steamer after it was fully engaged to take off survivors. Now, to re-emphasise the point of this episode, the General Slocum was not extraordinary. To quote the Inquiry report, the Slocum was typical in almost all of her conditions of many of the excursion boats in New York Harbour, and doubtless elsewhere. It wasn't that they were doing anything particularly wrong compared to what everyone else was doing. It was just insanely unsafe. Now, finding that this was typical didn't stop the commissioners slamming the captains, pilots, mates, and owners of the ferry for what was gross dereliction of their moral and practical duties in operating a seagoing vessel that was designed and operated for the purpose of carrying large groups of children. Having addressed this, though, the commissioners then turned to the Steamboat Inspection Service. Now, it's not the job of the inspector or the regulator to make the boats safe. That's the job of the people who own them and run them. But the job of the inspectors and regulators is to make sure that the people who have the responsibility carry it out appropriately, and to make sure that action is taken when they don't. Clearly that wasn't going on in this case. So the commissioners employed and deployed a new set of inspectors to carry out all of the standard inspections that were supposed to happen, and then compare the results of the new inspections to the last regular recorded inspections. They discovered a huge number of problems, including 30% of the life preservers in unsatisfactory condition, and that none of the fire hoses had been pressure tested. The inspectors hadn't even been issued with pressure gauges to carry out the inspections they were supposed to do, despite the fact that they had inspection forms with a clear blank space to record the measured pressure. It turned out, really, that whether boats were in good condition depended a lot more on the type of boat and how diligent the owners were than on anything to do with how they were inspected. The inadequacy of the inspections was partially explained by just the lax training and supervision of the inspectors, but also by the fact that the regulations required inspections, but it didn't give the inspectors any power. They couldn't even make sure that faulty equipment after being identified wasn't put straight back onto a boat. They couldn't demand that a boat be tied up so that they could inspect it. They couldn't fail an inspection and stop the boat from carrying passengers. One of the few regulations that actually could be enforced was on the manufacturers, rather than the owners, 
and this was just for life-saving equipment. There are all sorts of rules and regulations about how life-saving equipment need to be tested when it was first manufactured, as opposed to when it was sitting on a boat for three years. As one of the examples that came before the Commission, life preservers were regulated by making sure they contained the correct weight of cork. The end result, of course, was that the manufacturers were putting iron bars into the life preservers to get them up to the regulation weight. So we've talked about icebergs and life-saving equipment. One last story about radios, another technology that was only just being appreciated and coordinated at the time of the Titanic sinking. The SS Yongala was an Australian passenger and cargo steamship. On 23rd of March 1911, Yongala left Mackay, heading north for Townsville. Just as the ship was steaming out of sight, a cyclone warning arrived by telegraph for the Mackay signal station. Unfortunately, Yongala didn't have a radio. Wireless was just in the process of being introduced for Australian vessels, and Yongala's new radio set was sitting in a box on a different ship on its way from England to Australia. So, even though they had the message in their hand on the shore, they just had to sit and watch as the ship headed out straight into the mouth of a hurricane. Three days later, Yongala had not arrived in Townsville and it was posted as missing. The subsequent investigation and inquiry had to take place without any knowledge of what had actually happened. No one had seen the ship or knew where it was. Apart from some washed-up debris and one dead racecourse called Moonshine, Yongala had just disappeared. Yongala wasn't actually found until World War II, when a minesweeper snagged on an underwater obstruction. In 1947, after the war, the survey ship HMAS Lachlan investigated and charted the obstruction, and it wasn't until 1958 that divers confirmed that it was a wreck and recovered enough evidence to finally identify it as the Ongala. The purpose in recounting each of these other accidents isn't to deny the tragedy of the Titanic, or to suggest that a more safety-conscious culture, strong safety management, better engineering or safer operations wouldn't have helped prevent the disaster. It's just that when one person makes a mistake, it's natural to point a finger at the person. Once several people make the same mistake, the common element is the mistake, not the people. As the British inquiry suggested, what was a mistake in the case of the Titanic would without doubt be negligence in any similar case in the future. Good people with good intentions cause accidents. Smart people don't just look at what went wrong, but why it seemed such a good idea at the time. Before I wrap up this episode of DisasterCast, a quick word about next time. I'd like to have a chat in the next episode about the irony of safety. That is, where attempts to make things safer have actually made things worse, or even where people have been directly killed by safety systems. One example is the way increased automation can improve normal operations, but make things more difficult in emergencies. More direct examples might be where people are asphyxiated by fire suppression systems, or trapped on level crossings by automatic barriers. If you can think of any good examples of dangerous safety that we can use, please leave a comment on the post for this show, or send me a note via the feedback link, both on disastercast.co.uk. Thanks to everyone who's commented, reviewed, or tweeted about the show. 
Special thanks to George, David and Arclight for their continued efforts to promote Disastercast to a wider audience, and to Michael, Brian and Jerry for your comments on recent episodes. Jerry pointed out that the full archive wasn't showing on iTunes. I've tried to fix that, so hopefully now new listeners can get all of the old episodes right back to episode 1. I'll be travelling when the next episode is due, so Disastercast is going to take a quick break, and it's going to return on the 6th of May. I'll try to drop a short holder in the feed in place of the missing episode. Keep safe. <laughs>